I have bumped into being pulled by something my entire life. But it wasn't until from 2005 to like 2013, I went through a very, very intense sort of forging of a new relationship with the unseen. And what happened was that from nowhere, Derek, I started like really being curious about the word S-E-L-F. That's kind of insane. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to The Globe Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Tina Lifford. She is the CEO of The Inner Fitness Project, which is a well-being initiative that teaches practices for navigating life with mindfulness and resilience. We discuss her multifaceted work, both as an inner fitness coach and as an actress on Queen Sugar, as well as the philosophy behind her book, The Little Book of Big Lies, A Journey into Inner Fitness which was recently named one of Forbes' 21 books that will make 2021 your best year yet. I benefited a lot from Tina's book, and I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to speak about the ways we can navigate our inner selves to live a more authentic, fulfilling life. While reading Tina's book, I had a powerful dream. I mentioned it during our conversation, but I forgot to circle back to it, so I'll mention it briefly here. In my dream, I'm standing next to a woman and it's clear to me she's venerated and wise. She turns to me to say, those are the two words you use to limit yourself. When I woke up, I attempted to write down the dream in detail, but I couldn't remember the two words. This really frustrated me at first, but then I loosened up and began to accept the possibility, the invitation, that my psyche, my inner voice was alerting me, communicating with me that the ways I currently limit myself no longer serve me and to deepen my practice, to be on the lookout, to be aware of thoughts, automatic reactions and actions that can lead me to limiting myself. I think it's powerful that Tina's work, her art, made its way into my subconscious. It clearly affected me. I am so grateful to Tina for sharing her work with us and I hope you enjoy our spirited discussion. Hi, Tina. Hey there, Derek, how are you? I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be here too. (laughs) This is wonderful. It's great to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you. It's great to be in such a powerful conversation with um, a visionary, because I think that what you're doing is quite um, quite visionary in its way. Oh, thank you. You're, you're making me blush. <laughs> well, right back at you. You're a visionary. Your book is really special. And I, I think the majority of our conversation will... Um, revolve around your book, but I also want to get to your amazing show, Queen Sugar, and anything else that you'd like to discuss as well. Um, Fantastic. But let's start early on. You know, I, I find it so interesting. I'm immediately drawn into someone's story when they share how very early childhood memories or childhood experiences 
relate to their purpose and their calling. And your book starts off with one of your earlier memories of you referring to, as you put it, learning how to live life well. That's quite a precocious way of seeing the world as a child. And, you know, that ongoing project of learning how to live life well is something most people wake up to later in life. And so I'm just so curious, what were those early experiences for you? Yeah. um, Well, I really wonder uh, whether or not we wake up to it later in life or we remember it later in life. I sometimes, um, when you look at a baby, you can certainly see that there is a connection uh, to something beyond what they are just seeing. And I think we lose uh, our connection to this other, I don't know, realm or force. I'm not sure what it is. For me, I had an imaginary friend and that friend's name was God. And it was, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a particularly religious family, but I grew up in a family that talked about God. And there was inside of me a, um, a connection to the idea of this friend. And that wasn't taught. So, you know, I'm not sure where it came from. That's why I think maybe we we come here connected and then we become disconnected and we have to reconnect. And I would walk to school, you know, I'm talking second grade, and I would walk uh, on the edge of the sidewalk so that my friend could walk next to me. I would sit at my desk, scrunched to one side, so that my friend could sit sit next to me. (laughs) And I talked to my friend all the time. And here's the thing that is really fascinating, Derek. And I hadn't thought about this until just this moment. I spent a lot of time talking to my friend. And I spend a lot of time in a very conscious way, knowing what I know now, talking out loud to the universe. It is an absolute practice that I feel is foundational uh, and supportive to the journey of reconnecting with self. Yeah, that, you know, that inner light, our inner gift, you know, it seems to kind of always be running in the background. It's asking us to let go, to just trust that we're adequate, that we're enough. You know, for me, it feels like that ever present inner calling that is wanting to be expressed through me. And, you know, that seems to be the case for most people. And, And I want to come back to that concept a little later on in terms of being up for doing this work. You, you have a powerful statement about that. We can come to that later. Um, but it seems to come down to whether or not we, we listen to that inner voice, that gift, and, and really engage in the ongoing work of, of, you put it in so many different ways, getting unstuck, addressing our limitations. Uh, you refer to the practice. Yeah. You know, I think that the bottom line for me is we must 
acknowledge and then seek an inner self. We are not taught to think about ourselves in such a layered way. Mm-hmm. And so we we run around in life dealing with what we see, the physical. And yet, until we acknowledge that there is a self inside of us and that that self requires time and attention and then actually give that self the time and attention it needs, we cannot feel completely feel completely whole. Yeah, I love that because now you speak to the long journey. And I love the story of, of the journey of you deciding to write a book, not deciding to write a book, <laughs> going back and <laughs> forth, uh, you know, and, and essentially that thing that you're talking about that we don't look at or don't want to look at or spend much of our lives and maybe anesthetizing ourselves from looking at, like you refer to that something as something that wouldn't leave you alone. Yeah. And yeah. you know, that, that, that was so powerful for me because starting glow 12 years ago, back in 2008, like that's, I had the same feeling like this thing would not leave me alone. And so, you know, like what was it that wouldn't leave you alone and how important is that force for you in your creative process, not just for the book, but you know, as, as you know, in your work, um, in other realms of your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fantastic question because I now feel so gratified when that something is bugging me, you know, initially when I didn't understand that we are connected to, we are an extension of life and intelligence. And so the idea that a greater intelligence is literally endeavoring to use us for its pulling um, evolution forward, that is a profound notion. And it was, I mean, I have bumped into you know, being, being pulled by something my entire life. But it wasn't until um, it was literally in 2005, from 2005 uh, to like 2013, I went through a very, very intense sort of forging of a new relationship with the unseen. And what happened was that from nowhere, Derek, I started like really being curious about the word S-E-L-F. That's kind of insane. You know, like why all of a sudden am am I so curious about the word S-E-L-F? I was so curious that I sat down and at the time, you know, Computers were kind of clunky and and on my desktop. And I sat down and Googled. It it wasn't even Google at the time. I sat down and went to a search engine and brought up some biblical concordance. And I put in the word 
S-E-L-F. And nothing came back. I don't know at this point what concordance I, you know, actually have pulled up. Mm -hmm. But when I saw that nothing came back, that means S-E-L-F was not in that Bible. I went, oh, my God, that's it. We have left ourselves out of the entire conversation about life. No wonder we feel so fearful. No wonder we feel so disconnected. We have not included ourselves. We don't see ourselves included. And that took me on the journey. I became really, really curious about S-E-L-F to the point that literally, this is no hyperbole. This is no exaggeration. I started getting the nudge to go to the Bodhi book tree, the Bodhi the Bodhi Tree, which was, a, which was a bookstore here in Los Angeles that, you know, was a spiritual bookstore, very well known. It doesn't exist anymore. And yeah, my wife and I loved that place. Was, I'm telling you, you so... could just live in the Bodhi Tree, right? <laughs> you could, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I got the nudge to go to the Bodhi Tree. And I'm like, go to the Bodhi Tree. And I went to the Bodhi Tree. And I literally <laughs> walked in the front door and did this. I don't know what I'm, I'm not, I don't know. Why am I here? Huh. And I got nudged to go to the back room, a room I had never been in. Yeah. With all the intimidating t- titles of shelves, like That's exactly right. psychology. and. You know, but yeah. yes, all of those titles and yep. all of the Indian teachers and just, I had never been in that room. Right. Right. And I went into that room and I stood there for a second. And this is not a, an exaggeration. A book fell off the shelf. Hmm. What was it? And the book, I, I'm going to tell you right this moment, when I want to get the, the name of it absolutely correctly. <laughs> for, those, for those listening, <laughs> Tina just got up and is walking over to a different. <laughs> the name of the book is Be As You Are, The Teachings of Siri Ramana. Maharshi, and that's edited by David Godman. But that journey, and I started reading that book, and I got, I, I got a lot from the book. But the book was really, that journey was really about forging a listening inside of me. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't about this book. It was about forging a listening inside of me. And from that listening, I began to, as I said earlier, I began to really engage more actively as a practice talking out loud. Now, I just read recently that uh, um, science research is now saying that talking out loud to oneself is actually a way of thinking and processing and that it it actually allows us to better think and articulate. Hmm. So what does that look like for you? 
the talking out loud practice? So the talking out loud, I started saying things like, okay, so God, I don't get it. Um, so what is this thing about self and how is it that we don't know as much about it as we should? And how, how do we know more? I mean, what, how can I understand this thing called self? How can I understand this S-E-L-F thing? I started having those simple conversations, you know, and, and, and I learned early that it wasn't about, you know, thinking that some voice was going to answer. Sure. It was about being curious because that curiosity moves us into what I now call the thriving self. And the thriving self is that part where we are actually accessing the uh, neurocortex, the frontal cortex, and we have more self-agency and we have more space and room because the surviving self, the worry, doubt, and fear is abated when we are in the thriving self. What you're getting at is so critical because for those listening who struggle with that moment, that's a profound moment. That's life-changing. And you know, to, to tr switch from maybe seeking an outside voice to listening to an inside voice, you, know, you mentioned you're now grateful for it versus which suggests that maybe beforehand you weren't so grateful for it. Maybe it, it was maybe like annoying and nagging. You, know, you say somewhere um, roughly uh, in the first third of your book that you say, if I have learned that if I don't want to look at something, it's probably something I need to look at. And you talk about that, you know, in the context of pain and, and other concepts, yeah. but it seems like that was core to your journey, just things not working for you and you wanting to find a better way. Yeah. So yes. Um, and it was core to my journey. I, I, I had a great childhood, right? But it was core to my journey in that something was missing. And I felt it. I felt that something was missing. And that feeling that something was missing, um, it, it made me want whatever it was, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that longing, um, one, of the, one of the ways I now know that, that something was definitely missing is that I was always sort of uh, a little anxious or afraid inside. And, and why, why, mm -hmm. why, you know, that was the question. Why? Now I had had a, a childhood experience with stage fright that proved to be, um, you know, to be the doorway to my life's work, to my work as an actress and to my work in inner fitness. So, you know, on, on the backside of it, I understand that our challenges are doorways to self. Right. So that experience of something missing, you took that and you, it sounds like you not only massively changed how you show up in your acting career, but also as a writer, you wrote a play, you wrote your book, Yeah. your book became published by 
Harper Collins uh, recently. And that there's a whole story there too, which I don't, we don't have time for, but, uh, and then, you know, recently congratulations Forb also recognized yeah, your book. Yeah. Maybe yeah, you can speak to that for a ago, second. Uh, the little book of big lies uh, was named by Forbes as 21 of the books that will make your 2021 your best year yet. Woohoo! Yeah, it was <laughs> beautiful. I opened, I awesome. opened my email, and there the Google alert was that my nice. book had made it to the Forbes list. Nice. Yes. Okay. That's amazing. And I think, you know, when I was reading this book, it, it helped me. I had a dream while reading it, which maybe we'll, we'll get to. Uh, yeah, I think, I think for anyone who is in a moment of feeling as though something is missing, that they're stuck, like I would highly recommend your book. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe we now go into your definition of self-care, inner fitness, uh, the three selves, and let's see where that takes us. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. Uh, you know, my definition of self-care is really simple. At its core, I've already said it acknowledging that an inner self exists mm -hmm. and then tending to its needs and acknowledging that the inner self exists is a challenge in our society as it has been structured up until now, because we live in a never let them see you sweat society. Right. And we live in a society that is all about the doing and the making of money. Mm -hmm. And so the ideas of success are really rather small and petty when you compare the idea of success to being at one with your being and being comfortable in this experience, this tumultuous experience called life. You know, in terms of inner fitness, you, know, you refer to it as a journey that we all yearn for, you know, men and women without knowing, you know, these are your words, to wake up from the, the relentless harassment of the naysaying, the self-doubting inner yeah. critic. and you kind of pose a wish and a, and a vision for the world. And, you know, you then say like, what would happen to our well-being if we turned our attention inward, like you say, and then right after that, you express a wonder and a curiosity for what the world could be uh, if we all did that. And, you know, I strongly resonate with your vision and, and believe it too. Maybe you can just unpack that briefly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, going back to that, never let them see you sweat world that has, uh, formed us and conditioned us in ways that actually separate us from ourselves. That means that it has left us carrying pain, feelings, and not knowing what to do with them. And because SELF isn't even discussed, right? We, we don't know that it's important that those pains are representing a place that needs love and attention. And so when we, when we don't pay attention to that, it literally is akin to self-rejection. And if you can just 
imagine what it feels like to be rejected in society. None of us, you know, feel good about that. We all cringe. That's a very painful experience. Yeah. It is exacerbated when we reject ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we reject ourselves anytime we don't acknowledge where we are and how we're feeling. And and all of the selves for that matter. Maybe you can maybe this is a good place to share your three selves. Yeah. So um, you know, back to being in the Bodhi tree and that book falling and me just really being in conversation with the universe about self. I um I fell asleep and had a dream, and in this dream. I'm walking up this overcast beach and there are two uh, women, it looks like, arguing. And the closer I got, the more I realized only one was arguing. The one with her back to the ocean was flailing her arms. And the other one had this quiet, compelling presence. And the closer I got, the more the argumentative one would flail her arms. You could, I could feel her trying to get my attention. But my attention was riveted on the quiet, compelling one. And I was so drawn to her that I kept moving almost in a trance. And then I got about 30 feet away from them and I stopped. And then the quiet, compelling woman does this extraordinary thing. She steps towards the argumentative woman and throws her arms around her. Mm. And the argumentative woman melts. And then they both turn and look at me and I see that they are both me. Mm, It's powerful. It really, really was. Cause then I woke up and all of the questions that I had, not just about self, but the, the questions I had about like, why do I feel so confident in, in my life in so many ways? And then over here, there is this area that has total breakdown. I'm totally out of control. You know, I feel at risk. Why is that? Does it mean that the confidence is not real? You know, and that dream answered all of those questions for me. And what it said is that inside of us, there are these three selves, the surviving self, the thriving self, and the infinite self. And the surviving self out of 500 million years of conditioning for survival, it is always in worry, doubt, and fear. It is always at war and looking at uh, what's wrong and othering everything, Mm -hmm. always in judgment. The thriving self is that part of us that actually falls into these exquisite places of hope and curiosity and a sense of possibility and uses everything in life to sort of grow itself more, expand more. That part has been present in every major human evolutionary event, hope and possibility. And then the infinite self 
is that part that you can't, you can't even find that part because it is everything. It is life before time and life beyond time and, and physical, you know, representation. It is the nature of the universe living through us in an intelligent way. And if we think about it, we have all experienced it. We move in and out of these cells all day, every day. And the work of developing a conscious, strong inner self that I call inner fitness, that work is being aware of the evolutionary conditioning of the, of the surviving self so that we can now take the thriving self and the infinite self that are just as strong, just as present, but they haven't gotten our attention. We can now give those cells our attention so that we can consciously work to balance the conditioned behavior, reactive behavior of the surviving self. And you're so clear to point out that the surviving self is always there. It's always there. It always, always wants. There. And we want it to be there. We, you know, we definitely need to know when it's time to run. You know, we definitely need to have that, that survival instinct that can, that has actually pulled us, you know, into evolution from being a one cell amoeba to a uh, 72 trillion cell walking, talking being, that's an extraordinary journey. And the surviving self is largely responsible for that journey. And we are now at a place in consciousness and evolution and growth where we must see that there are even more powerful ranges to us and begin to deliberately, intentionally, and consciously manage the reactive part that has had uh, most of our attention up until now. Yeah, it's like the world needs to give our individual surviving selves just one big continuous hug. It's so true. It's so true because, you know, behind every issue that we face in this country and the yep. world is fear. And behind fear is therefore the need to survive. And behind the need to survive is an incredible fear about our existence. If in fact we aren't in this warring state. Right. And I submit that we have gotten it as wrong as early science got it wrong when they said that the earth was the center of the, uh, the universe. <laughs> right. It is, we've gotten it wrong. We think that we human beings are the event that we are the center of life, mm -hmm. but we are not life 
is the center of life. And we are the satellite that life extends to. And when we understand that we are here to be a way in which life moves forward, not races, not corporations, not life, then we can absolutely begin to, with confidence and excitement, care and heed the ways in which life is calling us to a much higher and more profound experience. That's beautiful. Just let that sink in. Yeah. You know, you share a lot of very vulnerable stories in your book. And, you know, you also, towards the end of your book, you refer to this inner work, the inner fitness. And I love the fact that you use the word fitness yeah. or that you combine the two words, inner fitness. It really changes it. It's like, no, this is not something you just do every now and then. This is That's ongoing. Right. It's clear right. that it's ongoing moment to moment. Right. Whenever the fear, judgment, projection, distortion, you know, on and on, any sort of numbing, dissociating behavior appears, that's your moment to activate your inner fitness work. And then you, you're so clear, which I'm thrilled about because some people contend as has, has been reflected back to me that, oh, this is something that I did once and now I'm done. I, I can move on or, but you're so in, in a very inviting way letting the reader know that, you know, successfully, as you say, successfully navigating this stuff takes a lot of work and it takes developing, as you say, a thriving inner self, capital S self that yeah. can stand up to the lies. That's right. And, you know, you, you speak a lot about lies and how we tell ourselves lies and how we navigate even the lies of society and the lies of our histories. And, um, you also say the job of those of us, who want it is to go after this idea. And, you know, I, I think maybe here might be a helpful moment to share how you express your own story, your own vulnerability, because I think it might be helpful for, yeah, yeah, for, yeah, for someone listening yeah. who thinks, oh, you know, I don't really need to do that. Like, what's this whole talk about self? And I don't need, I've, I've already dealt with that issue in my life. I'm, I've moved on. Yeah. Um, you know, you like, you talk about, and this is something that I tend to do. So I'm, I'm, this is why it, it really resonated with me. You know, you, you speak to, you know, on witnessing someone else's insecurity. I love this, this sentence. You say arrogance jumped ahead of empathy. And you, you then a few pages later say like, I feared their vulnerability because I feared that my own vulnerability right. unleashed could just topple me and pull me under. That's right. You know, you talk about projection that you know, we often tend to hate in others what we have not or cannot accept in ourselves. And, and you speak, you give stories around that. And then lastly, uh, you know, when we make something, this is another sentence of yours, when we make something outside of us the reason for our upset, when we think that other people are the things that cause us to be upset, we can never get to the core of the upset. Again, you give examples of, in your own life of how that's shown up and how you've navigated that. And I think those are powerful real life examples that probably most of us, if not all of us listening to this, 
do these same things or versions of these things throughout the day. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I love, I love uh, that we're talking about this because I was a person who was driven by my ego and I didn't know it, you know, but I definitely, uh, I, I liked being intelligent. I liked being capable. I liked being successful. And, you know, when I saw people struggling, I liked saying that wasn't me. I liked, you know, that, that I was stronger and had it more together than those people. I right? raised my hand too. I'm, you know? I'm, with, I'm with you on that. And so, um, this this journey and the little book of big lies oh my god it gave me back to myself because the more the more sincere i became about this thing called self right the more the more i had to be really honest with myself and the more I did that, the more I began to see that I am just like every other human being on the planet. And Derek, that actually was freeing to me. It's our common humanity. One of my favorite statements in the book is that when we see our issues as a reflection of a greater macro issue in society, then shame and secrecy have no uh, place and are unhelpful. Right. It's only when we realize that we all are living some version of the same experience of being human that we can become comfortable with this journey and sort of investigate it from a more curious place. If everyone has pain and unresolved issues, then what is that about? And what are we called to do? Because I don't believe that we are called to suffer. So I believe that we are called to grow and expand. And for the, your listeners who really do think that they are above it, I have two things to say. The emotional, spiritual bypassing, I think yeah. you're referring to. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, they actually may have, you know, have had the kind of education, the kind of, uh, of experience um, with life thus far that makes them feel like, you know, they don't really struggle. We tell ourselves these things, but here's how you can know the truth. What is that thing that you don't share with others for fear that you would be seen differently? For fear that it would, you would lose their self-esteem? For fear that you would feel so vulnerable that you might you know, be like the, the witch in The Wizard of Oz who just literally shrivels up with smoke? <laughs> that thing is what we're talking about. Yeah. We're not talking about, you know, education and money. We are talking about that feeling inside that got lodged inside of us for whatever the reason. 
and it disconnected us from our sense of ourselves. And it started telling us lies like, the person you see in the mirror is all that you are. Mm-hmm. That, that lie alone is enough to make anyone insecure. Mm-hmm. Because if what I see in the mirror is all that I am, then I am at risk because that person is flawed and at risk, right? The, the lies like, um, you know, the mean and nasty things that were said or done to you are the truth. Mm-hmm. We carry, we, we can intellectually say that's not true. But we know that we have ingested those lies when, when we find ourselves triggered by something that someone has done or said. Because the only way we can be triggered is when their words or their behavior towards us hits a place inside of us that is already tender with self-doubt. And, and, and potentially the last statements that you and I made could potentially be misconstrued to think that, that we don't or you don't have those experiences any longer, that you've kind of transcended. And you, in your book, you're completely clear that that's not the case, that, that you're, you're wrestling with your own lies right now. You're wrestling with your own fears, as am I. It's, it's just that and another thing you say is if we set ourselves up for chronic pain when we gloss over hurt like it doesn't matter. And what you're advocating for is just don't gloss over the pain. Exactly. Don't gloss over the hurt. Let, let, let that be part of your processing. And don't, and don't let it define you. Mm-hmm. Let it grow and expand you. If in fact life is the event and we human beings are, are not the event, we are the, the p- pathway for the event to happen, then we have one overarching responsibility to this experience called life, and that is use it to grow. If you use it to grow, you will always be on purpose. You will always be in purpose. You can use everything to expand yourself into that next better, better iteration of yourself. But you have to first be willing to acknowledge that you're not done and that there are things that have gotten twisted inside that leave you unhappy or separated from yourself. Right. And that that's natural. That's the human process. (laughs) Yeah. Can I tell you just a really quick story? Yeah, absolutely. I was in acting class. And there was a a student who came from a really famous acting uh, family. And she, we were in this exercise where you're supposed to walk to center stage and then talk about something that really bothered you, right? And this woman, she's dripping in, in money. You can just see the pedigree and the privilege and the, just everything in her. And she walks across the stage and she sits down and she starts to talk about how she, has, she had to share a bedroom with her sister. And of course, you know, I come from a family where 
<laughs> Three kids were living in one bedroom, right? <laughs> um, four kids were living in one bedroom. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, what? I mean, really? That's your pain? Mm-hmm. That was my first reaction. Mm-hmm. Judgment. And then I listened. That's right. And then I listened. And what I heard was the pain that was in that experience. Was the feeling not included that was in that experience? was the rejection that was in that experience. And all of a sudden, I was freed of that automatic judgment and comparing because everyone, everyone is struggling with those moments that allow them to disconnect from their sense of being loved and worthy. That's the point. That's the point. And just let that sink in. I mean, the power of the group work, which is part of what you're, even though that was an acting class, that there is an element of group work to that, I suspect. And you know, maybe this is a good pivot to your inner fitness uh, yeah. studio <laughs> where, you know, until you see that others are navigating very, their own versions of, of pain and that they have an opportunity to see you, i.e. to see and to be seen like what a powerful therapeutic experience that is. Uh, you also speak to therapy and how important therapy has been in your life. It's been incredibly important for me. I don't know if, if you want to yes. comment on that at all. Absolutely. So I will tell you, so, so that your listeners are absolutely clear, I totally accept that I am a human being. And the way in which I navigate life today with, I call myself practiced, right? Mm-hmm. So when people say, oh my God, you've got so much wisdom or oh my God, you've been, what I say is I am practiced. And I think of being practiced the same way, you know, in yoga, you practice and you get to that level of flexibility and then you continue to maintain it. I am practiced. And, and, and because I'm practiced, I am always looking for these five culprits, at least I'm looking for judgment. I'm looking for manipulation. I'm looking for blaming, attacking, or proving myself and my worth in any way. Because if that is present, if that's leading, I know that my surviving self is leading. Mm -hmm. When I see my surviving self leading, I make an effort, a practiced effort to shift into curiosity. That takes me into the thriving self. It takes me into an objectivity that allows me to be able to see why I'm doing the things I'm doing, what has been triggered inside of me so that then I can meet those um, feelings, those memories, those automatic default reactions with more clarity and intention. So that is happening all the time, right? Um, and I will, I will just say that, um, yeah, the, the, the game for me now is to embrace my humanness mm-hmm. as part of my contribution to being used by life to grow into a more whole and healthy iteration 
of being, of human being, right? And what we do at the Inner Fitness Project, uh, at the Inner Fitness Studio, is that we approach the inner work the same way physical fitness and yoga approach being, you know, strengthening the body. We believe that, you know, it, you can train inner strength and well-being incrementally, the same way you do yoga or physical fitness. And so one hour at a time, we meet our clients where they are, and it becomes this very tailor-made experience in a group setting where you meet yourself in the moment through transformational concepts that are made actionable through exercises and then um, in, and then embraceable through people's personal experiences. And that combination grows you. And so where yoga and physical fitness, you know, have a floor mat in the inner fitness studio, our mat is your journal and your journey. You bring those two things and we can do some amazing work Change that allows world. us to, yeah, yeah. And where and, do people find that? How do they get there? Um, you can go to my website at um, www theinnerfitnessproject.com and then look for the Inner Fitness Studio. You'll see the work that we're up to. Uh, it's work that, like you say about GLOW, it grabbed, it grabbed hold of me years ago and has been pulling me forward. And it has pulled through a number of iterations. But um, I woke up in 2009, I think it was, with the term inner fitness. And it was like, it says it all. It says everything that all of those other iterations I had been involved with uh, was trying to say. And I believe, you know, yoga is absolutely an inner fitness practice. Anything that allows <laughs> us to turn within mm -hmm. and see the inner self is inner fitness work, just like physical fitness work has all of these, you know, different ways of getting to the physical fitness of it all. Inner fitness can show up in a myriad of ways from meditation to mindfulness to all kinds of practices. And the Inner Fitness Project is saying that and then in our way, through the work we do at the Inner Fitness Studio, we're helping people take those concepts and make them actionable in their lives. Amazing. Uh, we'll link to that in our show notes. And you can also find Tina's book there as well. Here's something that um, I just, I, I realized it years ago. And so... As a facilitator, I absolutely lean into this. When truth is present, it is felt. And the way you know it is felt and real is that you feel better. And so the work, you can, you can tell if, in fact, 
a therapist is right for you. Because as far as I'm concerned, every human being on the planet should have a certain number of hours in therapy so that you can get in there and really sort of break up the crusty stuff. And then you can use inner fitness work to go deeper and to expand and to discover yourself anew. How do you distinguish the friction that one feels, which can come out as fear or insecurity versus something that just doesn't make me feel better? Do, do you know what I'm saying? Like, like I could start, I, I could join, say, a certain, or I could set down a certain path or a certain intervention and feel like, oh gosh, this is so hard. I don't really don't know if I can do this. This is a little scary. Uh, you know, Tina says I should be feeling better. So this pain of, of fear and scariness is not making me feel better. So I'm going to bounce. How do you distinguish between that and like, this just is not a fit for my soul. That is, that is such a great question. And I'm so glad you bring it up because there is this incredible experience in, in the work of transforming where all of a sudden inside the stuff that doesn't feel good, the stuff that you've been running from, the stuff that is the reason you've been, you know, um, medicating, that stuff, all of a sudden it doesn't disappear. It still is yucky. But inside of that yuckiness, there is a relief. There is something that feels better about yourself and that stuff because truth has given some sort of comfort to the experience. It hasn't eliminated the experience. It's given you a way of being with it and understanding it that allows you to stop judging yourself as less than not good enough and understand that you're in the midst of a process that up until this moment did not have the kind of insight needed to properly process. So look out for those moments where the three selves are feeling some kind of harmony. It may not make rational intellectual sense, but it might make heart sense. I was in my kitchen in struck with pain around some relationship and I was doubled over and I went like this. It was the most wonderful moment. I went, oh, this hurts so bad because I saw all the patterns. It was so common. It was, I was like right there in the middle of it. And, (laughs) And right after I said, oh, it hurts so bad. I broke into this smile and I looked up and I said, but I get it. I can see it. And everything was beginning to reform in terms of how I saw and the degree to which the old pattern was controlling me versus now me seeing the old pattern and being able to take charge. Yeah. Uh, I can't find the quote now because I have so many notes here, but you say something about how on that point, just because the old pattern is showing up again, 
it doesn't mean that I'm not making progress. You say some version oh, of that, which is oh, so I critical. I love that you brought this up because I, I mean, it really is one of the most important um, concepts in the book. And I think it is in uh, the chapter, I thought I was done with this. Our brain is a habit building muscle, period. It's conditioned by the past. And so our patterns on scene, there are all of these elements that actually tie and hold our stuff in place, the stuff that triggers us in place. And when I discovered that the cherry on the top that holds it all in place so that the the surviving self knows that it is right there and it ain't going nowhere and it is in control. (laughs) The cherry on top is when we add to the pattern, our pattern of self-rejection. When we say it's happened again, you know, and I'm, and I'm flawed and it just proves that I'm not good enough or there must be something wrong with me. The surviving self. Or someone else is making this happen to me. Yes. The moment we move into that self-rejection, the surviving self takes a deep breath and says, okay, the pattern is in place. So when we learn to- And that's comforting. That's comforting. It's comforting. In a a paradoxical- Because it means that, that we will operate within this known loop. And in this known loop, we know what's happening. Doesn't matter that we're unhappy about it. The The surviving self is is just trying to help us survive, period. You know, it doesn't care about us smiling. So we'd rather sit in the pain and the unhappiness to stay safe and secure. That's right. Even in our bubble of, of crushing unhappiness. Exactly. So I'm grateful that we're doing this interview because had it not been for that, I don't know if I would have started watching Queen Sugar. And I'm almost done with season one. So please don't give anything away for me. (laughs) (laughs) I did hear you say in a previous interview that season four is amazing and you just wrapped on season five. And when is season five? Season five uh, starts airing February the 16th. And we start, we go back to New Orleans uh, and start shooting season six, I think at the top of March. It's not a show to binge watch, in my opinion. It's one to to really take in. You deal with so many issues in that show. I mean, you know, from social and racial injustice and inequity to slavery, the history of the problem of land ownership. For example, you know, white families controlling land, stealing land, controlling the banking system and other aspects yeah. of the whole sugar processing um, you know, production supply chain. Yeah, it, it's actually, it actually represents um, our history, our, our, our legislative history, our institutional history uh, in this country. Uh, and um, one of the wonderful things about Queen Sugar is that you meet this family, the Bordelones, and you will relate to the Bordelones. And the Bordelones represent a 
a story of family and struggle and love. And also in the context of that, you learn about um, part of America's history that you may not have known about, particularly the, the, the struggles of Black farmers in the South. Um, I love that season five, I mean, literally, Ava DuVernay is so brilliant because we, we got shut down um, after the first episode, after taping the first episode last year, uh, and then COVID shut us down. And while we were down, Ava and the writing team went back in and they literally rewrote all of season, season five to include the realities that we were living. And so I, when I, you watch season five this season, you're going to see COVID. You're going to see everything that we have been in. And the border loans are experiencing that because the border loans are just like you and me. You know, they are a real family weathering life as it shows up. I'm so glad she did that. Yeah, you know, it's brilliant. It's I mean, brilliant. Just in season one, I mean, the the, the issues, topics that yeah. I mentioned are just part of it. It deals with so much more. I mean, you know, from how black landowners and farmers are kept from processing, uh, uh, kept from prospering by these very systems that have been in place for so long. And, you know, how black families are not able to pass down land ownership and wealth as a result, the prison industrial complex to mental oh, health, yeah. like the messiness of relationships the educational system, just you know how where one lives can expose one to more environmental crisis and, and just so much more. So that's just season one. So I can't yeah, wait to yeah. see. And, and what's amazing about that, Derek, isn't it amazing that, you know, those are really tough issues. Mm -hmm. And yet we come at it in a way that doesn't leave you heavy. We come at it in a way that is kind of like the work that we're talking about, that there's something about looking at it honestly and truthfully that expands. There's something about that that adds as opposed to just adds weight. You it's, know? it's additive, it's generative. I, I'm an easy crier, uh, but you're right. Like the crying moments are, there's a levity to it as well. Yes. There's a hope There's a hope to, to it. it. There's a thriving self <laughs> There's a thriving to self. It. And yes. Right. And so as I'm, I'm so glad I read your book before I started watching your show, because I could see how this role is just perfect for you. I mean, the way that you're kind of this, this, this center of gravity almost for what, all of these characters. Is, and I mean, just the most, sorry, if you could see us, if you could see us, we're both squirming in our seats right now. I just wanted to, because <laughs> we're on a time crunch here. <laughs> you, you go and then I'll go. <laughs> uh, okay, I just have to say, I have to say, going back to inner fitness and doing the work and telling yourself the truth, right? And being intentional about your life. That role in so many ways is in my journal. Mm. In my journal, I mm. wrote that I wanted to be part of a, a storytelling that was um, important, critically acclaimed, working with a a, an ensemble group of actors who are fantastic and the cast I work with are amazing. They are amazing. And to bring undeniable value to the role. Yeah. That's what I asked for in my journal. And Queen Sugar is an incredible 
um, manifestation of that ask. Well, you spoke out loud. I did. And you manifested it. (laughs) I say it because I encourage people to be intentional and speak out loud and write it down. Those are all strategies for for navigating life with greater um, skill. Right. And there's there's one scene where you're speaking with the mother of Blue. I think her name's Darla. And um, Kofi, his father, is standing in the doorway or nearby listening. And because you tell the story of Steve and your brother and how that particular moment in your life was... That, that the vigilance of you realizing your repetitive habit of judging and how you, by understanding that and, and flipping it and, and making peace with that, that vigilance entirely changed your life. And just knowing that and watching your performance in that moment, because that moment has also to deal with that, all, that moment also deals with addiction, as, as does the story yes. of your, your brother Steve. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Yeah, my, 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 my brother died of uh, an overdose um, like two weeks out of rehab after so many different journeys to rehab. And uh, for years, you know, I just, I just felt such guilt and, and shame for being successful when my brother struggled so much. But he struggled for good reasons. And when I really came to understand that we all are a byproduct of the lies that we swallow and ingest, just the compassion that I feel for every human being who is struggling. And what my brother didn't know that that Aunt Vi fights for, that Tina Lifford fights for, is that how it has been up until now does not have to be how it is from this point forward. We'll have you back on after you write your next book. <laughs> well, I, you know what? The next book, I am, I'm in the process of it and I'm excited because it speaks to the group work that you're talking, the importance of group mm. and what and how we can heal together. And that literally just creating a, a place where one feels safe, seen, and heard mm. can do an amazing job in helping us to move beyond the past. So that's what the next book is about. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Sign me up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. My last question. So we think of self-care and the work that we do on ourselves as contributing not only to ourselves, our relationship but also our planet. And so, you know, I'm curious, you know, how this interconnectivity between your own self-care and care for our planet is evident in your life. Uh, And in what ways do you connect with our planet and have those connections deepened your desire to protect and preserve our environment? That's a, that's a beautiful question because I literally am currently, you know, looking for an organization that I can be a part of uh, that is willing to fight for the rights of the planet. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't think of the planet as this living, breathing entity. Again, our arrogance, and I don't say that judgmentally, Mm -hmm. but our arrogance and our ignorance has us thinking that we human beings are the event. We are not. 
we are given this gift of being able to be here in consciousness and experience in form being connected to this extraordinary thing called life. And we have abused that by thinking that life is here for us when in fact we need to flip that and recognize that we are here to serve life. And when we do that, we realize that we have the, the ways in which we have addressed life and this planet up until now is so barbaric and so against the gift that we have given, been given, and that we must begin to see the planet as a thing, a living thing, and that when we attack it, when we desecrate it, when we strangle it with our egos and ignorance, we must be held accountable. Beautiful. Thank you. I agree. Yeah. Tina, I'm grateful for you coming on our show. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is so much fun, Derek. This has been so much fun, <laughs> right? I mean, we could just be in these kinds of conversations forever. That's, yeah. that's, that's what I plan to do for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah. And I'll tell you one thing, you know, I say that I'm practiced, but, but in addition to being practiced, if people know anything about me, if I want people to know anything about me, what I want is that I walk my talk. Mm. and that I am committed to walking my talk. And so if it's coming out of my mouth, I am endeavoring every single day to, to not talk about it, to not, you know, be that never let them see you sweat person, but to literally be stretching into and trying on and endeavoring and testing and practicing every single thing that comes out of my mouth. And thank you for writing your book because that is the evidence is there, the work, the effort that did not come overnight and it's an inspiration to all of us. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll do it again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank, oh, I, I would love, I'd be grateful. I'd be honored. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find The Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.